0: This week, we talk about the benefit of making decisions separately from executing on those decisions, whether or not it's risky to share internal metrics publicly, and more. Let's go. Welcome to Startup to Last, a podcast about building profitable software businesses that are meant to last. Hi, I'm Tyler. I run a bootstrap
1: SaaS company called Less Annoying CRM. I'm Rick. I run a software enabled services company called Leg Up Health. What is up, Tyler?
0: Not much. Uh, I got some cool stuff to talk about today, I think. Um, did you? Do you follow the, uh, the state of independent SaaS survey that MicroConf put out?
1: You know, I, I don't look at it. I intentionally did not look at it this year. Did you look at it?
0: Yeah. So they, they just released it. D- did you fill out, like, I think last fall they sent the email out to, like, collect data from people. Did you fill that out?
1: I opted out because I'm not technically a SaaS business, mm. so I felt a little bit like it wasn't for me.
0: Gotcha. Um, is there a reason you don't look at it? Is that also because you're not a SaaS business?
1: I think there's two reasons. One, most of the data in there probably is not actionable for me right now, and I look at it as a distraction. Um, And all I can do is probably get envious of what's in there, so I abstained Mm -hmm. from looking at it. That's
0: probably smart. I probably should do the same. Yeah, I I was reading through it like I'm interested, but I don't know what there is to get out of it. But I have a complaint that... It's not about this survey. I want to be clear. I think it's very cool. If, for anyone who's not familiar, if you just Google state of independent SaaS, it's like tons of SaaS founders kind of give metrics and stuff so you can benchmark your business. But I keep hearing this from various people that like the payback period on advertising should be whatever. And by payback period, I mean, they say like if you spend $100 on, say, Google AdWords, what should how long should it take to get a hundred dollars back in revenue from your customers, such that you've kind of broken even, and then everything after that is profit? Is that how you understand the term payback period?
1: Yeah, and usually it, it's there's an acronym in front of it called CAC or customer acquisition costs, and um, yeah, it's like how much how long do you does it take to return uh, an investment in marketing or customer acquisition?
0: Yeah, do you happen to know at PeopleKeep like what your payback period tended to be?
1: Oh yeah, I was. Very focused on that, um, when I was there, it was about six months. Um, that being said, we were not in growth mode we were we were pretty much do, we were as lean as we possibly could be on customer acquisition. If we had been trying to grow, our CAC probably would have quadrupled
0: yeah, so it would have okay. this is what I don't get. I see lots of people like on indie hackers and stuff like that, and on podcasts that I listen to say you should have a payback period of maybe one or two months. Four months is maybe the worst you should accept. This survey, the state of the independent SAS, said 35% of the businesses surveyed had a one to four month payback period. This seems just wrong to me. Like, who is getting a one or two month payback period? And if you have that payback period, shouldn't you be like, Fifty xing your business every year. Like, why are you not just pouring all of the money that exists in the world into this channel? I don't get it.
1: Well, the payback period as a standalone metric doesn't tell you enough to decide whether or not to pour gas on the fire. I mean, if your if your payback period is five months, but then you only have one month of profit after that, and then the customer churns, it's not necessarily a great business, right? That's like. like-
0: Almost impossible to imagine, though, because it, it, people don't all churn at month six. Like, your payback period would be really long if people are churning in the first
1: six months. My my point be is that looking at payback period in isolation doesn't tell you enough to make a decision on whether you should pour gas in the fire. Uh, it's retention, customer retention and lifetime, or customer lifetime, I guess is the, the term, needs to be taken into account.
0: It needs and to it, be taken into account. But would you agree that if you have a one-month payback period, like... Like what? What could possibly be happening with churn, such that it doesn't make sense to be pouring gas on the fire? There, uh, you're not churning 100 percent of your customers that second month.
1: I mean, I, hopefully you're not. But if you have a business that is that way, you could be. Um, SaaS, gen- because we're we're talking about software as a service, it's unlikely that would happen. But
0: yeah, I mean, okay, so you're right. It could be the case, but. the 35% of these respondents they didn't have that like they
1: but why are but they not just growing so much faster i don't get it but that's the thing is like this is why CAC payback is it's such by itself without any context is such a useless metric because listen if you're in a steady state where you're not trying to accelerate your growth you're just happy generating x number of leads you you have that dialed in and you're going to be able to optimize your CAC to a low number the minute you start trying to grow you mm-hmm. start, you start exhausting what you know what you can um how how much you can grow at that payback uh period and you have to spend more money which by definition increases your payback period
0: okay so you just said something i, li- I like which th- the only viable argument for why this is true to me is that you aren't trying to grow faster I have a hard time imagining 35% of respondents that's true for, but probably some of them, they're just like, we've got all the leads we need. I don't want to grow any faster. Why, why would you pour more gas on the fire? I get that one. But what should naturally, you just said a thing that I think a lot of people don't understand intuitively, and I had to learn the hard way. If you've got, let's say, Google AdWords, you're spending $100 to get, and, and it's a two-month payback period, so you get $50 a month or whatever. If you move your budget to 200 it doesn't just scale linearly. It gets worse and worse and worse. And until eventually it's like non-viable. Like we went, we did this at Serum. Right now we can spend about $3,000 a month on AdWords. If we go to $10,000 a month, the, the, I don't know if it's cost per click. I don't know what, what metric gets more expensive, but the whole thing stops working. But I'm surprised people stop at two months. I feel like, because at Lessing Serum, our payback period is about 15 months. And it's like worth it. I'm surprised you wouldn't stretch it a little bit more than that because it's still easily, if you have a six month payback period, that's fantastic,
1: like financially. I think the answer is yes, you should. If one, you have a good place to invest the money where you think you can get a reasonable payback period, or two, you have an area where you think it's worth experimenting into new growth channels. And three, you have the money to finance the payback period.
0: Well, this was specifically AdWords. You can always just increase the budget in AdWords. I'm not talking about finding new channels. I'm saying just spend more money on AdWords.
1: Uh, anyway, by experimentation, I'm just calling I'm not,
0: bullshit on it. I think, it's, I think it's a lie. I think these people are calculating it wrong or something's wrong. This would be the greatest investment. I mean, the ROI annualized would be like thousands of percent. And you're an idiot financially if you're not pouring money into that.
1: I think I think a lot of people with low payback periods that are smaller businesses have have very low marketing budget and a, like one repeatable channel that isn't very scalable or like it it works predictably every month or year but it doesn't mm-hmm. it's not something you can like lever up and down and 100%. so my my hypothesis is that that group is a the, the group of really low paybacks is probably an optimized business that is really dif- difficult to um grow predictably and controllably and so therefore you have to run it tight on a payback period basis yeah i don't know i, uh, I still think all these sur- but i want to agree with you real quick uh, <laughs> that part of the challenge with benchmark surveys like this is that they you create these averages and medians that taken out of you know without the context of how the other metrics are working for that specific company don't mean anything because yeah. a payback period, you know, with a, anyway, you're yeah. a bit, I have a period. question though. Did you get any, yeah. like, just kind of coming back to the topic, which is, do you, did you get value out of the survey or did it just make you mad? Yes. Okay. Uh, what did you, what well, you, it
0: didn't make me mad at all. I, cause I, I think I'm, I'm happy with how our metrics compare. Um, the thing I learned, the, the most valuable thing to me was, uh, what I forget exactly how they analyzed it to come to this conclusion, but basically what channels are the most successful SaaS companies using to grow? Um, I They probably fra- framed it a little differently than that, but the thing I liked seeing was SEO, was so word of mouth was number one, which is probably predictable to be expected. I've kind of been under the impression that SEO has been dying for a long time and it's harder and harder to get it to work. That was the second most popular one for saying, this is a channel that's working for me which I found valuable because I'm a, as maybe I'll mention later today, we're about to start looking at new marketing things. And I really want SEO and content marketing to work. That gave me like confidence to go into that field.
1: Good. Yeah, that makes sense. But
0: there's 90 pages in the report and that was the only real value I got. But I I like that they do it still, you know.
1: Yeah. Why do they do it?
0: Well, because it's microconf and they, I I think it's a good way to get a lot of, they just want every bootstrapped SaaS person to like, think of them as it's content marketing, right? It's, it's uh, so like it's inception. They're using content marketing to tell me to use content marketing. Anyway, (laughs) what's up with you?
1: (laughs) My big update is that I officially have installed a, is it WAMP or WOMP?
0: I've always said WAMP, but Wamp. I've got that nasally Midwestern <laughs> thing going on. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: got I, I installed the WAMP uh, server, and I started learning uh, PHP. If you're not familiar with the acronym WAMP, M is in mom. Um, it stands for Windows, Apache, uh, my SQL or my depending on how you pronounce that, and then PHP. And it's basically a stat a package um, of programs that and a, that you can run on a local server to be able to develop programs on your computer and run them to see if they're working and as a result of this I was able to write my first PHP program and start accelerating on my actual pro backend programming skills which has been a goal for a little over a year since we started this podcast. Um, and uh, I am so I just want st- to say it's going r- really fast and there I think there's two reasons for that. One is three reasons. One, I spent a ton of time in the front end over the last year with no-code tools. And not only am I familiar with HTML, JavaScript, how browsers work, CSS, but I'm also familiar with how no-code tools interact with each other via HTTP requests. Um, And then I spent, that's so that's one, like no-code really helped me, I think, understand how the internet works. Second, I invested a ton of time into understanding the macro before really diving into PHP. So I spent a lot of time trying to understand the difference between different programming languages, what a web server was, what the building blocks were for a a web application. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, I think, is letting it go really fast. And then the third thing is I did major in computer science and learn Java and build program like desktop applications in college. So I didn't understand. I just... I. All of that stuff is coming flooding back and like I'm having these like n- midday sweats when I'm reading about PHP, like remembering, like trying to fi- finalize a program that I had built for a class in college. <laughs> I don't know if you experienced that at all, but uh, I was I, I was a, a
0: terrible student. I just oh. I I submitted broken code for like every homework assignment. They don't check. They never run it.
1: They don't run it, but like it has to like l- like it look has to like look like it works, right. yeah. <laughs> in one class, I wrote a whole
0: paper about like how my like oh my experience writing this, and if they'd run it, they I would have gotten kicked out of school.
1: <laughs> I just lied. But, but yeah, it, and it's bringing like all the the classes around memory back. Like oh gosh, those are the worst. Yeah. The, like anyway, um, um,
0: but so it's going fast. That's awesome.
1: It's going really fast, uh, and and so my my that transitioning into sort of what, what this means is I think for February, well, I've set a goal for February, which is I want to be able to via a backend script, script, uh, automate my monthly account email that goes to all my users that updates them on their policies. If I can do that by the end of February, that's a big one.
0: And you fit, I mean, I assume you're feeling good about that based on if you think it's going fast.
1: I'm feeling really, really good about it.
0: This is something that I've struggled with teaching people how to code is like, there are all these concepts that by themselves are sort of similar, but until you understand them all, you're like, why am I learning any of this? So like, how do web servers work and front end versus back end and APIs? And none of them are hard on their own, but there you've, it sounds like had this light bulb moment, which I remember when I had it and I've seen people who work for me have it. But when you're teaching someone at the very beginning there's, I don't know of a path to get them to that light bulb moment without just a tremendous amount of like, why am I learning this?
1: Yeah. I, I think you have to be, there, there is, it's, I'm trying to think of an analogy. It's kind of like, I don't know. It's kind of like hiking. It's so boring and it sucks, but then you get to the top and you get to see mm. the view and it's like, oh, that's why I did all this, but hiking still sucked. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 it, there's this huge cliff you have to climb in order to see the forest, um, and i i don't you have to be extremely committed to the outcome because there's very few small yeah. wins along the way. Well,
0: that's the advice I always give people is, yeah, like exactly what you had you you're like, I need to build this project. It's not that I need to learn to code or need no code or anything. I want the outcome, but the problem is so many people, especially like a lot of college students, reach out to me and ask about this, and it's like you don't you're a college student, you don't have a goal yet. So anyway, that's tough.
1: So, so I, I experienced this with an intern. Um, Dane, who was a really cool uh intern this summer, was our product uh um he did the product internship. His outcome was to build a functioning uh web-based application that took inputs on someone's health and sort of indexed them based on publicly available data, index them at, at at a for, for risk. Um and he because he had that outcome he actually built a working python based web mm-hmm. application um in one like one day a week summer internship yeah. but he was That's a computer cool. science he was a computer science undergrad and knew the basics yeah. of python
0: yeah yeah speaking of teaching people to code so we're i told you we're not doing internships this summer but we're doing the coding fellowship still where we teach people to code um it got like our job listing got posted on some website that I guess has like a huge, not like a recruiting website, but it's like some person who helps people find jobs. And we got a hundred applications yesterday. I've never, have you ever like had a job listing just get like overwhelmed with applicants? This is my first time.
1: I had that last year with my internship program Mm. relatively for what we, I mean, it was the first time I had posted interns, small company. I think I got 35 applications all at once mostly from Duke students, that was overwhelming. Like,
0: Yeah, because our normal strategy is like, let's just set up a call with everybody. And you can tell pretty quickly in a call, but we, we're not going to set up. We now maybe have 150 applicants. We're not setting up 150 calls. And I now appreciate how hard it is. Like everyone's resume looks the same. And it's just like, how do you tell who's good and who's bad based on like a resume and whatever fields we ask them to fill out when they apply. It's tough.
1: What I did was maybe you're probably figuring this out, but it's, you have to, you have to, if you, I went through every single resume um, and there were ones that stood out and I set those aside and I said, these are people, there's like five people. These are people that I want to have a conversation with. Mm-hmm. the rest of these people the remaining 95 they need to do something to self-select in in order to get an interview and so i went after pretty aggressively the five that i wanted to interview which like they jump off the page i think um mm-hmm. but, but the other is it's like some of these people might be great but how do i tell them apart well you you make them do something you like send them an email saying hey uh we got a lot of applicants if you're really interested in this we'd like you to do XYz and it sort of lets them take Opt in by doing that something uh, special.
0: That ma- that makes a lot of sense. We may be doing. Yeah, okay. That gives me some things to try out. Cool.
1: What? Uh, what else for you? Let's see. Is I? That's it on my updates. I'm I'm cool. pretty focused on on programming at this point.
0: Nice. We're gonna. This is gonna turn into a technical podcast pretty soon. <laughs> um. So on my end, I, I keep talking about this Webflow project. I'm it's so, so close. I think I'm targeting a week from Saturday to be the flip the switch, hopefully. Um, I think it may lead to some downtime. So we're gonna do it on a Saturday night when nobody's using the site. But uh yeah, we've we've spent almost a year porting our whole marketing site over to Webflow, like hundreds of help articles, thousands of blog posts. Um Right. And and then along with that, we have to move the subdomain of our app, which I didn't realize how how much work that would take. So anyway, really coming close to it.
1: (laughs) I'm going to stop talking about it soon, I promise. So so uh, what what exactly are you in testing phase now?
0: So the the Webflow part itself has been done for a week or two. So Eunice on our team is like she's the marketing person who all of the no code stuff she did. Um, and by no code, I just mean stuff that doesn't involve deploying code to our server. But there's a lot of like, we have to get all everything that currently runs on www.lessknowingCRM.com. We have to move to account.lessknowingCRM.com. So I've been doing that. So we're not quite in, we're kind of doing it piece by piece. So like right now, if you log into Less CRM from www, it takes you to account.lessknowingCRM.com. And that's where the app is. But there are still like webhooks. For example, we sync with Google Calendar. Google Calendar knows to tell us when an event is updated. It sends that message to www. So we have to go in in all these places we have to update to start going to different URLs. So that's kind of where we are right now.
1: But isn't this what, when constants can really help you out?
0: Uh,
1: yeah, yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you like that? Uh, yeah, very good. <laughs> we That's exactly what we use for these, Yes. <laughs>
1: so the problem are, is we
0: are, set them to the wrong things originally
1: and so is it pretty easy to go through and reset the constants don't you have to is that just one update
0: uh yes this is a combination of things one is like over the years the code base has just gotten really really big and messy and you know the concept of technical debt that like yeah if you could go back you'd be like why did we write it that way and it's like well no reason we just were moving fast um It's partially that. And then also just, yeah, you you mentioned testing earlier. You have to change it in a way... So what ends up happening is you have to leave the old one working and deploy the new one and then update it. But when we have a team of six people, you have to also make sure no one updates the old one. Or else... And then when you switch, you delete their changes. So there's just a little bit of coordination going on. I don't know. I, I appreciate now how like really big companies... You're like, why does Twitter need a hundred engineers working on like some little feature that you would think is nothing? And it's like, it just gets more and more complicated as the code base grows.
1: Yeah. And you've got more people working on different things. Mm -hmm.
0: Cool. So, uh, yeah, I'm really, really excited to have that done. And because of that, that will unlock all kinds of marketing. Like we haven't done any real marketing for a while because we've been working on this. Have
1: you queued up? projects and are and they're ready to go or is there going to be this time period once this gets done where you sort of start queuing up projects and prioritizing them
0: uh good question we've queued up the fr- I, i'd say we've broken it into two phases for Eunice Eunice puts four days a week into this and I which is a lot more than I do so she's the main person um and then I have a little one of these little retreats I mentioned coming up in two weeks where I'll be working on stuff I don't know what I'm going to be working on yet My plan is at the beginning of the retreat to. I have a long list of ideas. I haven't prioritized it yet. But for Eunice, the plan is so maybe I've told you this before. I think we've been a victim of our own success, which is to say we have, say, 1,100 or something like that free trial users coming in a month, just without us doing anything. And so every marketing project we try, have tried in the past five years, we're like, well, it needs to be a meaningful percentage of 1,100. And it's like really hard to go from zero to like, a hundred new free trial users, you know? So we've like either, A, taken on way too big of projects because like you need to be super ambitious or B, we take on small projects and they wouldn't move the needle enough and we'd have kind of we kind of lose interest. And which, this is just stupid. This is like a mistake. So what we're trying to do this time is say, what what are some small things we can do that should lead to wins quickly? I shouldn't say quick wins. What are ways we can say, go back to the early days and say, I'm going to get small wins quickly.
1: Small wins quickly.
0: Yeah. And start building Um, some
1: momentum and like, yeah, the progress is the great motivator.
0: Right, exactly. And so I'm interested in your thoughts on this. We're thinking the, the best way to do that is to take things that are working somewhat, but that we have completely neglected and just tweak them. And so the things that are working, we have like a lot of content on our site. None of it's killing it, but I bet if we just do a general SEO improvement, some our traffic might go up a little
1: um, yeah, the, yeah the and the quick win with that is applying the pareto uh principle across web pages, where you just go where's if you do a two x Pareto where you go where is uh ninety what are the ten pages that are doing ninety percent of the traffic and then you do another mm-hmm. what are the what are the ten percent of of those pages that're doing the ninety percent of the leftover traffic that should get you with a small list of pages to focus on,
0: yeah. Yeah, that feels right to me. Good news on that front, by the way, like we ran a little like SEO audit thing on the web, just like Webflow by virtue of being faster and following more best practices. Our score went from like 70 something to 90 something. So just like across the whole site, like every single page. So I don't know how much of a difference that'll make. But yeah,
1: that's great. Have you run a, a site speed test on Webflow?
0: Yeah. So, what the thing I was just talking about was uh, Chrome Lighthouse, which is the thing that's built into Google Chrome. So, it's there's four things: it's performance, accessibility, best practices, whatever that means in SEO. So, on average, and then it gives you one average score. So, our average score went from seventy to ninety.
1: Can you send me a link to this uh, following the podcast? I'd be interested in testing my live application because I I tested mine and I was getting a really low score and I can't tell if that's how I've, conf- if that's something I'm doing wrong on Webflow or if it's maybe a tier I'm paying for or what?
0: One important thing to do. So I, I will send it to you, but people might be interested in how to do this because it's super easy. It's built into Chrome. You just open up the Chrome developer tools, which is like F12 mm-hmm. um, and there's all these different tabs. And you go to, like on the far right of the tabs, it's like Elements, Console, Sources. The far right one is Lighthouse. And you just click Generate Report. Key thing here, this is super important, and it warns you about this. If you have extensions running, extensions will slow down your pages. Um, so you, what I did is I created a new Chrome profile with no extensions, and I ran it there. Because it's possible you got a bad score because of the extensions you have installed in Chrome, not because of the website itself.
1: Yeah, so I'm getting a really good accessibility and SEO score, but a low performance score. And it looks like it says Chrome extensions negatively affect the performance. So that's probably exactly what's happening. I do have a lot of extensions installed on my browser. Very helpful. Thank you.
0: The only other thing that could be causing it is, like I think the most common performance problem we ran into is unused JavaScript. So if you have like a lot of third-party, like an intercom widget, and you're doing a lot of no-code stuff, member stack or all that, those could definitely slow it down too.
1: Interesting. Thank you.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, now we're starting to get into uh, marketing stuff. I have a question for you. Mix panel, have you or in the past, Kiss Metrics was a thing, although I think they're now defunct. I don't know what the other alternatives are. Have you used something like that before?
1: Not successfully. So you, have you used it unsuccessfully? I've, I've, I've tried using analytic platforms before, and. I, I, maybe I, they're just, maybe they're just, maybe I'm just too stupid to get, get them, but I, I rarely get value (laughs) out of them.
0: Yeah. Okay. The re I, I had this on my long list of marketing things, like take a look at it in the past. I thought of it as a really expensive thing. Um, and they changed their pricing model in a way that makes it way, way more appealing to me. It used to be based all of these. I, I haven't looked at these in like five years, five years ago, they all priced based on the number of events you track. And now they just, and maybe I was just misestimating. I had a really hard time figuring out what is this going to cost, but I was coming into this thinking it would be $1,000 a month to use Mixpanel. Now they just do monthly tracked users, which is like the number of users who have some kind of activity in a month. Way easier to wrap my head around. And I now see it would only be like a couple hundred bucks a month for me.
1: Can you help um, me understand the use case for less annoying CRM? Because I I really struggled to figure out a use case for this. At People keep... Um, that was like, what? what is your, why Why are you even, what problem are you trying to solve by going to panel?
0: Yeah, so what I'm trying to start doing that I used to do that I haven't recently is just like really rapidly iterating on marketing stuff and like just experimenting and trying stuff out. And a key part of experimentation is like you try something, but then you have to know, did it work or not? And not all questions, but I think some of those questions can be answered by panel. So for example, like, you could go into mix panel i think and say take all of the users who signed up from affiliate the affiliate source i want to see their churn rate or how many other users they've referred or their expansion revenue or something like that and you can kind of drill down and maybe like find opportunities um, and then i yeah like i said i think there's some kind of ab testing mechanism where you can be like i'm going to i'm going to try something and then go into mix panel to see like the people who got treatment a did that affect their likelihood of coming back the next day. Like, if someone watched the beginner's guide, are they more likely to pay at the end of the free trial, and then you can use that? I, I, I don't know. I, I'll admit it's a bit of a solution looking for a problem, though.
1: Yeah, it's like it seems like you could do that with Google Analytics. It Seems like you could do that with your existing tools. I, what is I don't I, what is think you can do panel, with Google Analytics. What is Mixpanel bringing that is you that new and different that you wouldn't yeah. be able to do with Google Analytics?
0: So maybe I'm not a Google Analytics power user, uh, but. I think the big thing is Google Analytics mostly just tracks, like, clicks on a website, basically. So, for example, someone, uh, when our users pay us, the first time they pay us, they're taking an action. But then they're automatically billed every month. Google Analytics never knows that that person was billed because it happens on our server. Um, Mixpanel's tracking a lot of events that are go beyond just a user clicking a thing on a web page, I also, maybe, again, maybe I'm wrong about this. I think Google Analytics is not really well designed to say, okay, the user signed up in this web browser and then they came over here and paid and track that same user session. Whereas in Mixpanel, it like knows what the user IDs for everyone is
1: and stuff like that.
0: Am I wrong about how Google Analytics works there? Oh,
1: that's I'm not a power user either with Google Analytics, but it sounds like it's Mixpanel allows you to sort of track the user across. Interesting. So it's more about like, starting with a with a user and saying, where did this person come? You got to track the person across the whole life cycle.
0: Yeah. And I'd say I'm still planning on using Google Analytics for up until the point that they start a free trial. But I think when someone's an actual user, they're paying, they're adding sub accounts. That's the level of nuance that I think Google Analytics misses.
1: Okay, interesting.
0: But I don't know. I might give it a shot. We'll see. If you crack the Uh, code
1: on analytics, I would love a tutorial.
0: Yeah. But uh, seriously though, like pricing was the only reason I haven't been using them. And so now that I know it's only a couple hundred bucks a month, I say only, but like that's a fifth what I thought it was going to cost. So, um, what else do I have here? Oh yeah. Uh, we talk about remote work from time to time. Did you see that Salesforce is announced that they're going somewhat fully remote?
1: What, when did they announce, what did they announce specifically? Is this like a full time decision or is this until the, until the, pandemic is finished with.
0: So yeah, like a lot of company, almost every company kind of went mostly remote when the pandemic started. And then a lot of them have kind of announced, we're going to keep it like this or similar to this going forward. So last week, uh, Salesforce did that. And they basically said, the majority of employees will be doing flex where they're in the office maybe one day or two days a week. Some will be fully remote, which I guess they had basically none of before. And then a very, very small number will be in the office all the time. but i thought i'd mention it there are, a lot of companies have done this there's nothing special there they're a little different in that my prediction for this year if you think back to our end of year episode was that san francisco is going to become a better place for actual startups like i feel like it had been really taken over by big tech salesforce has the biggest the tallest building west of the mississippi or at least that was true when they built it i don't know if it's still true huge building in the middle of downtown san francisco and they're basically saying People aren't going to be coming in here anymore, which I think means there's a lot of office space available in San Francisco now. Um, That's interesting to me. What does that mean? I think if you want a really cushy, comfortable work environment, remote work probably fits the bill. And if you are young and hungry and want to work 80 hours a week, you probably want to be in person. And. I think that the same way Google came along, you know, 20 years ago and reinvented the office culture and made it cool and fun. And that was how they recruited all those amazing engineers. They said, you're a recent college grad. You don't want to be in the suburbs with your family. You don't have a family yet. You want to like hang out in a city and have sex with all your coworkers. (laughs) Like, I mean, that's what Google was offering. Well, maybe not because, well, anyway, but uh, I think that there, there's a new opportunity in the world for companies to new entrepreneurs to move to San Francisco, have real offices and use that as a competitive advantage and be like, you see how all these other companies are going remote? Like, fuck that. You don't want that. This is a place where you can actually come into an office and interact with real people.
1: It's funny how cycles go, you know, it's as soon as something becomes the norm, there's always an anti of that. Mm -hmm. And, Mm and, Uh, It just speaks to differentiation being important.
0: Yeah. Well, and, but a year ago, even if you saw this coming, you would have been like, well, you have to do that in Austin or you can't do it in San Francisco. But now, like, I think there's just millions of square feet of empty office space that they can't lease in San Francisco. This seems bad for San Francisco, not good. Maybe for the city, but I think it's good for the people who want their opportunity
1: there. Which are mostly people who don't live there to begin with because it's mostly transplants, right? like
0: yeah, it's for the new the new generation of trans- transplants should be happy about this, I guess is what I'm saying,
1: and do you think that the new generation of transplants is going to continue to flock to san francisco
0: yeah i my I mean, my prediction this year was that yes, but we'll see mm. not as maybe not as much as before, like before it was like every single company tech company in the world was in San Francisco. I'm not saying it'll be like that, but I don't know. I lived there for five years. If you're bootstrapping, it's a stupid place to be. But if you're raising money, there is something magical about that city, I think. That's fair enough. Um, Cool. You got any rants or shout-outs you want to talk about here?
1: I, I, I want to hear about this plucky one-to-one.
0: Yeah, okay. So I saw someone on Twitter uh, tweet, there's this Plucky is some company that I don't know what they do. They're like management consultants or something, but they have this little product as a side project from what I can tell. And it's a deck of cards that just has like one-on-one questions you can ask your employees. And I know you can like go online and there's endless lists of one-on-one questions, but I bought uh, two. uh, There's one for like one-on-ones with individual contributors and another for one-on-ones with managers. I bought both for myself. I just have these two decks of cards sitting on my desk now. And if I'm in a meeting with someone and I did not prepare for the meeting at all, which like I'm not saying you should do that, but let's be honest, that happens. I can just lift, pick up this card and be like, like, here, let me do it real quick because I just shuffled them. I don't know what this question is going to be. What is this company's purpose outside of profits? And then secondary topics, vision and progress. It's just like a little conversation starter.
1: <laughs> I think it's cool. <laughs> it's for the lazy manager.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying like, if you're a manager, buy this deck of cards and you can stop working, but like, I don't know. It's handy.
1: That's an interesting (laughs) question. That must have been a manager question.
0: Uh, The decks are color coded, but not labeled. So let me see. Here's the other one. What decision uh, have you been avoiding?
1: Yes, you're right. The
0: first one was the manager question.
1: (laughs) What decision have you been avoiding? Man, those are way better questions than I normally ask in a one-on-one.
0: Yeah, I, I like, uh, so, so one was, um, what's what's some invisible work you've done? Like work that you did that no one saw? Um, there's a lot of interesting questions. I, pu- I pulled out about half of them because I thought they were stupid, but
1: uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's neat. smart. Like you went through and removed all the crappy ones so that you're yeah. guaranteed to get a good one. That's good. Yeah,
0: because a lot of them are very big company based. Like some of them are like, how does your team interface with the rest of the company? And I'm like, well, here, you know, there's only two teams and we all know each other. So that's not a good question, but. Yeah. Anyway, if if some if anyone's managing and you're just like, I never know what to... I'm having these one-on-ones with people. I never know what to say. The cheap way is to just look online and find a list of these questions. But if you don't mind blowing $35 on a deck of cards, I think this plucky one-on-one pack is worth having.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, I have a, sh- a shout-out to you. Oh, okay. I just want to say thank you for taking some time to share your dashboard again that uh, you use to manage your KPIs uh, key performance indicators at less Knowing CRM and then adding commentary around how you use those, uh, data points. I, I thought that was really interesting and a really easy way for people to sort of live in your sh- shoes for a moment, um, and understand what it's like to, to be, um, the CEO of a, a few million dollar business. Um, did you get any interesting reach out as a result of that?
0: No. So this is how bad I am at Twitter. So if, if anyone didn't see this, like if you follow me on Twitter, I posted this uh, a few days ago. I, uh, I I worked pretty hard on this tweet thread. I was, you know, I like took all these screenshots and wrote commentary and stuff. And I tweeted it and like nothing happened. And I was like, what? I'm surprised. People normally like this type of thing. I tweeted it in the middle of the Super Bowl. I forgot the Super Bowl was happening, so no one saw it, basically. <laughs> you need to
1: retweet it to, like, today. I, I
0: did retweet it Monday morning. Um, no, I, I got some comments and actually a couple of really good, like, questions and pushback and stuff. But uh, you, I, you never know what's going to blow up on Twitter and what's not. That one was a bit of a dud. <laughs>
1: well, if you haven't seen it, you should check it out because it it actually is one of those... I mean, not many companies share that type of information. So
0: I, I was a little nervous, in particular, about the cash flow sorry i didn't uh, the uh financial model one where it's like you know here's our profit every month and here's how much money we have in our savings account (laughs) yeah that's
1: that's transparent man
0: i thought about the like what what bad thing can happen from sharing that like what do you think what like imagine the worst scenario What, what what's the problem with sharing that
1: i don't know maybe someone kidnaps one of your employees and holds you ransom for the bank account
0: yeah, that's actually pretty close to what mine was. I we didn't used to share this stuff because of patent trolls. We were like, uh, if people don't know, a patent troll is someone who like sues you for a patent infringement, who's probably wrong. Like they won't win the lawsuit, but the idea is like you can't afford to defend, so you settle even though it's a frivolous lawsuit. When we hit a million dollars in ARR, we agreed we have enough money to defend a patent lawsuit now, so let's start sharing our numbers. That's,
1: yeah, it, it's true. Like the only thing that you have to worry about is people using that information to take advantage of you and it doesn't seem like that's a huge risk. I mean, compa- yeah. I, I guess like if someone like Salesforce w- wanted to put you out of business, they could use that information potentially to say, hey, like let's let's wrap these guys up in litigation so that they can't afford, it. but they could do that anyway. I mean,
0: right, they know that we're smaller than them, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> like so yeah, I don't see I don't see much downside honestly other than like some if you care what other people think and that matters to you mm-hmm. a lot, then Potentially, that could be a negative mental health decision, but I don't get the impression that you two care too much about whether people think you're <laughs> you're cool or not because of how much money you have in the bank account at listenings here
0: yeah, yeah fair um but cool, I'm glad to hear you uh enjoyed the thread yeah one person
1: yeah well it's <laughs> no, it's, it's 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 not necessarily just enjoying I just i really i I know how I know how much time you put probably put into that to explain it and add context, which is probably a good exercise for you to go through anyway. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you don't see that type of content very often. That's fully transparent. So anyway, good job. Uh,
0: I I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but I just want to respond to one thing you said there. Tweet threads, I think are such a great writing, writing exercise. Be, like the problem with it is I never communicate enough. Like when people ask questions, I'm like, if this were a blog post, I would have explained that, but there's just not room, but it, like forcing explaining like complex you know metrics into how, like 280 characters is a really good exercise yeah um,
1: shifting gears here uh, I think uh, you're you you may have contributed to this most recent trends. VC report um, uh, called competitor risk but I really liked it um, and it gave me some from some, some verbiage that I just wanted to share real quickly on how to uh, how to think about a, a business space or market segment uh, for how how good of an opportunity it is for boot, a bootstrap business and the word is fragmentation and frag- fragmentation is exactly why I think I'm excited about the leg up health space and the leg up benefits space of individual health insurance and small business benefits um, respectively and I'm really just want to kind of give a shout out to Drew and whoever, you and everyone else who contributed to that uh, report, because I've been searching for the word to try to explain to people who don't, aren't familiar with the business, why I like health insurance. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's because it's a highly fragmented business that means there really isn't a whole lot of competitive risk of a of a uh, you know dominant takeover by some VC backed company. Um, so really happy I had that word and I think um the other really interesting thing in a fragmented once you are realize that you are in a highly fragmented market, really, there's two things to do that I think Leg like health can do to grow faster. one is driving down switching costs, which i haven't really thought about switching a o r s as a switch as as switch like switching from like one SaaS platform to another SaaS platform, but it really is. It's like switching service providers and the same principles of switching costs that apply to SaaS could be applied to someone's agent, current agent and switching to Leg Up Health as the agent, new agent. And mm-hmm. so thinking about costs in the form like we don't have necessarily financial costs of being of switching to Leg Up Health, but we do have massive emotional costs that we could, uh, you know, make we could drive down with tools and content. Um, and then there's also a huge, uh, uh, what I would call like relation, relation, uh, cost, uh, you know, if, if there's a big difference between someone who has a current agent and someone who doesn't, um, yeah. and so that could have, you know, recognizing that the switching costs for someone with an agent are significantly higher, uh, than someone without an agent affects our, you know, who we are targeting from a marketing standpoint. Um, the other big factor that I took out of the report was. Leveraging other people's audiences, um, especially, you know, I'm going to be talking as, as the year goes on a lot more about local targeted marketing. And if you can find um, people with very targeted audiences that overlap with your target audience, that's a huge opportunity, if, especially if you have a product that is unique and solves a problem in a, fr- in a fragmented space. So... Um, I, I feel like if you're in a fragmented space, you probably have peep there are probably people that have audiences big audiences of your target customers that don't have a good product to offer them in the space. And if you can differentiate in that fragmented space and take it to that person's audience, they'll be pretty willing to to take it to their audience because there hasn't been a referable or endorsable solution previously.
0: Yeah. With you saying that it, it reminds me of kind of a general concept that I'm a huge believer in when, you, if you're ever talking about competition, which we've talked about before, is like, you want to do something no one else wants to do. Of course, the downside to it is that there's a reason they don't want to do it. There's something unappealing about it. But what's so important to understand is if your competitors are venture-backed and you're not, or there's some other fundamental difference between you and your competitors, it's possible there's something that's really unappealing to them that's not really unappealing to you. And this fragmented market thing, I think is a great example of this. To a bootstrapped company, it's like, oh yeah, we're just gonna sell health insurance to people in Salt Lake City. To a venture-backed company where they're like, well, we have to be worth a billion dollars in five years. We can't do that. Like That's not a path towards being that big that fast. So I think it's a really interesting way of saying, like this is so unappealing to other people and it's, it's a, a plenty big enough market for you right now.
1: Oh yeah. And the reality is, if you if you crack the code on a on a fragmented market over time, you can make it the the market less fragmented. I mm-hmm. believe that. Um, but it just takes it takes a lot. I think it will take a lot longer uh, to do that in, in, than it would uh, in a non-fragmented space or more blue ocean space.
0: This has been our from the very early days of Less Knowing CRM. This is kind of like a theory or a hypothesis we've had that I wouldn't say we've proven out yet, but we're still pursuing is so, like, small businesses are really shitty customers to go after. Not not that they're bad customers, but they're hard to go after because um, there's not a very, like, they're not, they don't pay enough to justify sales. You can't, ha- and, and that's how the, the normal enterprise SaaS playbook is entirely based on sales, right? You go raise a bunch of money, you hire a big sales team, and basically twice as many salespeople means twice as many new customers. That's how you double growth. Um, that doesn't work with small businesses because the, the unit economics don't work. So like there are ways to reach them, but it's just much slower and less scalable. And the theory is if we're just more patient than everyone else, eventually we can get them all, but it's just going to take longer.
1: Yeah. It's like, if you want to build a business, you almost have to build a startup to last business to win in a fragmented industry.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Looking at it, like uh, f- to stay on small businesses for a second, the only company I can I've, I can think of that like has really nailed this is Intuit.
1: Gusto, Everybody uses QuickBooks. Gu- Gusto is another one. They're they're they're, they're not quite where Intuit is, but they they've, they, on they they've they've done something where they're they're taking payroll, but it had been done before with paychecks with technically sales reps. Interesting. Yeah,
0: I think of Gusto as, like appealing more to a startup crowd, but maybe that's like less true.
1: And I'm realizing that both of the examples we're giving a small business accounting software and small business payroll is there. The definitions of highly fragmented business, like they are highly yeah. fragmented. Right. Those are just the two big players, right? Like um, Intuit is the big player in accounting, but they're not by any means the only player. And if you wanted mm-hmm. to start accounting, if you want to build an accounting software tomorrow, like you probably, there probably is a bootstrap of a business there um, in some niche. hmm
0: Yeah. Well, less accounting. Who people confuse with us because we both have less in the name is is one of those, yeah. So, uh, as much as I hate into it, I kind of dream of being in their market position one day.
1: And what is it about? What about it is do you envy? Is it is it the brand awareness and the, and the stickiness, or is it the like the, they have a huge accountant following that gives them a competitive advantage? Is it the market share? Yeah. What what is it?
0: I, I mean. All of those are the reasons, but I'm just when I talk to customers, "Hey, what what email do you use? Maybe it's Gmail, maybe it's Outlook. What, you know, what this do you use, what that to use?" But they all use QuickBooks. And it sucks. I don't like QuickBooks to be clear. I don't envy the product there and they're also behind TurboTax, which is an evil thing. Like Intuit is a company I hate. But I just every customer I talk to uses QuickBooks and it's just that like they, they're amazed we don't integrate with them. They're like, we are small businesses, and you don't integrate with QuickBooks? What? Um, I just want—I want less knowing CRM to be that. I want them to be like, we're small businesses. Of course, we use less annoying CRM. That's cool, but we'll see.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, um, do you? I think did you contribute to that? Or yes. That,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah. I've I've now done three. I've talked to Drew for three of these uh, reports he does. It's very cool because you you said one of the things you got out of it is the term like fragmented market. When we talked, he did not have the terminology figured out. And I didn't say this to him because we were talking about other stuff, but all the terms he used, I was like, that that does not communicate the idea at all. Um, and then like so like what he does is over the course of a week, he just talks with 10 or 15 different people and the ideas evolve until eventually he has a
1: really good report. But
0: it's cool being in the middle of it and realizing how ill-defined it is at that point
1: yeah it's it's interesting just kind of shifting gears for a second related to this if i can go down on tangent the there's there's an interesting sort of content play drew is 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 doing it it's where you have sort of a weekly cadence of sharing highly high signal low noise content around a specific uh, topic that you would probably pay to get um but then you source it from people and give them credit and you sort of create this uh, shared momentum, like share, w- sh- like kind of virality almost into each report. There's another guy doing it in North Carolina. I think his name's... Oh, I can't think of his name right now, but Kevin, it's Software Advice, I believe is the name of it. But he's basically doing a similar thing to Drew where he talks to a bunch of people around a topic every week and then uh, sends out a bunch of software ideas. Software ideas is what it's called, I think. Mm. And it's basically, if you're looking to start a business, he'll curate a list of the best ideas um, on a, I think it's a weekly newsletter. But see, if you wanna like get paid to write content, if you go talk to experts, get focused on something and then take like a bunch of, let's just say 20 hours of conversation and boil it down into like a 10 minute read, there's probably someone willing to pay for it um, if you pick the right topic.
0: Yeah, and the experts, I think, are happy to do it. Like, assuming you have a following, because it it makes that, like, every time I've talked to him, I'm I'm like, I think he's doing me a favor. I'm like, wait, what am I even getting out of this? But it feels good, you know? It's like a nice kind of ego
1: boost. People love talking about what they know.
0: Yeah, but the flip side to what you just said, I now appreciate how hard... This would be like, imagine having 20 hours of conversation every single week to put out this, you know, very, very short report. I mean, it would be exhausting.
1: I think if you like that learning, though, it can, it's also highly like energizing, but it's not sustainable. Like it's one of those things, it's not scalable. I should say it's one of those things where it's going to be, I feel like this is, this is a business that eventually like. Either this is something you just love doing and it's your passion and you just do it for the rest of your life, or you probably stop doing it at some point and move on to something else. Or maybe you figure out like how to systematize it, but I think it's just not the same if you tried to hire someone to do it.
0: Yeah. If, yeah, if Drew said to me like, Hey, can you, do you want to talk to this person I hired? I'd be like, No, I don't think so. But, can you imagine a better position to be in to find the next opportunity? Like, my job is to spend 20 hours a week talking to the most influential people in tech. I'm I'm not putting myself in that. I'm like the least prestigious person he's talking to. I mean, he knows and, everybody. And,
1: and I'm getting paid to analyze the trends. And so if you think about mm-hmm. it, like, he incorporates a lot of what he writes about into his business of trends. VC and you can see it. Like he'll write about yeah. something and then he'll, all of a sudden, like there's this like little thing communities, for example, it's a circle community. He did a VC trends.vc VC on communities. So mm-hmm. there, he's, it's like a perfect playground of first of all, I, I think it's probably generates a decent amount of cash, which is, it's not a bad, it's a great cat cash business. It looks like getting paid to learn. Um, you're getting paid to practice, uh, you know, business principles and the learning that you have is he's analyzing every trend in SAS. I mean, yeah, like, yeah, it's a great
0: stair step. Do you know Rob Walling's stair step? we talked about, yeah, we've talked about it. It's yeah. like the
1: perfect, it's a perfect step. Uh, yeah. I, so if you, I think like if, as I think about like monetizing content, I, I like that model of taking lots of hours of really good content from experts and boiling it down into something, I think that's a really interesting way to go. Yeah. Agreed. Um, what uh, What else do you want to talk about this week?
0: Um, I have two more topics listed, and I don't want to talk about either of them. You got anything?
1: <laughs> uh, here's one. Um, I spent a little bit of time uh, thinking about this for my newsletter last week, and it's um, I, it, it kind of spawned, this came from our conversation last episode about meal planning, and I realized that it's it's the, I don't like sharing decision-making with people. So it's exhausting actually. Like when you have to make a decision with someone, mm-hmm. it's awful. So I'm now becoming much more aware of the separation of making decisions and then executing on decisions, not just with other people, but in my own day, like, oh, this, that work is, I'm doing that work so that I can make a decision. And then no, I'm doing that work is actually executing a decision I made previously. And dividing those two things is making me see my days differently. And I have a much greater appreciation now for days in which I need to make decisions. I probably shouldn't try to get a lot done execution-wise. just focus on the decisions Mm. because decision-making is exhausting. And it doesn't... Yeah. You don't don't realize it. And then you feel unproductive when you have to make a lot of decisions. Um, I think this is something I did terribly in my CEO job was realizing, hey, this is a time I need to stop executing and I need to make decisions and I need to focus all my energy on decision-making and protect that. And, and then say, like execution comes later. I think I tried to pile decisions on days that I was supposed to be executing and execution on days I was supposed to be decision-making and then failed at both. Um, anyway, have, that just a, more of an observation that I'm yeah. having. Um, have, you, have you thought about this topic much?
0: I... Uh, Not in these terms, but I'll can. i give an example where we landed on a process that it's almost like we knew what you just said, but we didn't think of it that way. And that is, I think I've talked before about this jog system, which is sort of our play on the concept of a sprint. Um, You know, agile development kind of has these, for us, it's about a two or three week, you know, you're working on something. And we don't do the whole, like anyone who knows about agile development, there's like all these stupid titles and roles and meetings you're supposed to have. We have a very simple version of it. Before someone starts a jog, we have a meeting, which is with me, Robert, who's the kind of lead developer, and then whoever the person is doing the work. And the goal of the meeting is to make it so there is zero uncertainty about what they need to do so that the next week, two weeks, ho- however long it takes, they're in pure execution mode. And so we, we talk through and we're like, oh, well, you're going to run into this thing. What are you going to do there? And so we don't tell them the stuff that like a developer knows how to do. We're not helping them with that. We're helping them with the thing where it's like, would they have to pull their head up and go talk to someone or make it? So yeah, using your language, we make all the decisions in that meeting and then they can just go execute. So we landed on exactly what you're saying here.
1: Yeah, and that's good that you guys do this naturally, but it gives me great appreciation for the the CEO, COO, traditional role of CEO makes decisions, COO executes. I understand that mm. dynamic much, much better. I didn't. This it's kind of giving clarity to that, but there's just if you think about a day, or or something you want to do, if you can sort of say what separate and think about getting that thing done. What are all the decisions I'm going to need to make, and what are the things I'm going to need to execute on to get make those decisions come about? I feel like if you can front load like you're doing with the jogging, the decision making, so that you Mm -hmm. free up the execution, you probably feel a lot better about the execution when you're doing it. And it's a whole lot, you get, you have a better chance of getting into that kind of flow state. Um, I, uh, I don't think I spend a lot of time thinking about all the decisions that I'm going to need to make in, in advance. And sometimes I start executing and then I get frustrated that I'm not getting more done because I'm getting stuck against a decision wh- that I had, that, that I, that I should have known I need, would need to make in the, you know, ahead of time.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you brought this up. Cause this is again, just another example I'm working on this Webflow project. And again, there's you know all these little bits of code all over that you have to change. I have a list of maybe 200 tasks related to it, like a very, very long list. And I always feel guilty when I spend like, I have a half day open, no meetings. And at the end of it, all I've done is added another 50 things to the task list. And now what I realize is that's making decisions. And then I spend another half day knocking out 50 tasks. And it's like, if I hadn't spent the, the half day making the tasks, I would have taken much, much longer actually completing them. So uh, I've, yeah, sometimes I luck into this, but I think this is gonna be really helpful for me to think about now that you've said it out loud.
1: Yeah. Th- yeah. Thanks. I, I don't know if you do this, but I, and I think you're actually probably pretty good at not doing this, but I, I think the biggest thing I make, the the biggest mistake I make with this is I try to pile too much into one day, like, mm-hmm. especially like, I think about like meetings with other people, when I try to make like decision, like let's say you're in a team, you're in a five person team or marriage, for example, two person team, you get in the me- meeting, you're trying to make a decision as a family. There's a big, de- like one good to joint decision is a lot of F eff- takes a lot of effort.
0: Yeah. Well, and there's a whole separate thing here, which is like, you know, the reason, for example, democracy is somewhat inefficient is it's very different when there are two equal decision makers than when there's one. And, and, you could interpret this in different ways, but one of them is, this is something I found at work personally, it's one thing to empower other people and all that. But when you're in a meeting, there needs to be one decision maker, I think.
1: Yeah, that's a good point.
0: You can't do that in marriage, I understand. Yeah, but like in yeah. where, in business, you can.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then I guess the other thing is when you're asking someone to make a decision, I think I'm really bad at, giving them the time to make the decision versus I want mm-hmm. a decision right then. It's like, I totally discount how much effort goes into a good decision. I think as a leader and a manager, when you're expecting someone to make a decision, you need to give them the, the, the space to put the energy. You can't go make this decision and execute on this other task by tomorrow. Right. One of the others. Is,
0: this is also like the value of asynchronous communication. Um, i I'll admit we've been bad about actually doing this, but when the pandemic started, I kind of instituted a new rule, which is like, if you're going to ask anyone to make a decision, but even just like have an opinion on something, send it to them before the meeting, like well before, like the day before, if you don't give people time to think about it. And yeah, that's the problem with meetings or any real time communication is it's like what, am I just going to sit here staring at you while you process this? Like, humans feel the need to say something to fill the gap, and that leads to a lot of bad decisions.
1: Totally, totally. Um, And yeah, you can't, like, there's a real, decision fatigue is a real thing. Like, there's only so many decisions you can make in a day before, you know, the bad, you know, the quality of the decision starts to erode.
0: I, uh, this will be my last comment because I realize we're just, like, extending this forever, but on that topic, like, I think this is a reason to have, uh, a co-founder. Um, and I'm not saying this, I, I, you made the right decision. I'm not saying you should have a co-founder, but like in the discussion of should you or shouldn't you, something that I don't think I hear talked about enough. Sometimes I'm just exhausted. And I'm just like, I'm going to go talk to Bracken. And he made a decision that if I just like gone to sleep and woken up, I could have come up with this. But like when when you're just like, it's all on me. I have to make the decision. Sometimes there's like this release valve of being like, I'm going to go bring someone else in and see what they think. And it it helps.
1: I was telling Sable this exact thing yesterday where it was after we did the pair programming, I was like, I just got a taste of what a co-founder would be like, because just brainstorming with Tyler on that call and being able to problem solve together was so much quicker, bouncing the ideas than me doing that in a vacuum. Yeah. And uh, so I told her I'm going to come interrupt her now and bounce, even if it's just her to listen to me talk and asking questions, it's helpful.
0: It's nice that she works in tech, so she can, I mean, maybe not every topic, but a lot of them, I bet she knows as much or more as you.
1: A lot of them, yeah, especially in the marketing areas. Well, um, I I guess uh, have a good rest of the the week, and I'll see you next week. Yeah,
0: sounds good. Talk to you later.
1: Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, I have a favor to ask. Please write a review on the podcast app of your choice, because reviews play a huge role in helping other people discover useful podcasts. And if you'd like to review past topics and show notes, visit startuptolast.com. See you next week.
0: See ya.